0: Welcome to the fried egg podcast. I'm Garrett Morrison, and my guest today is Shane Bacon. Shane is the host of the excellent podcast, Get a Grip, a friend of the fried egg, and now a children's book author. Shane's new book is called The Golfer's Zoo. It was published by Back 9 Press, and you can order it right now. So Shane and I are going to talk about this book and about the occasionally fraught relationship between parenting and golf, but I also thought we'd discuss Shane's background in writing. He actually got his start in golf media as a blogger, and he has some interesting takes on how the media landscape has shifted in the past 15 years or so. Now, Shane is the first of a few book authors we're planning to have on the podcast in November and December. I figure it's getting cold outside in a lot of places, golf season is winding down, and it's a good time to bring some new books into your life. So we'll give you a few different options over the next couple of months. All right, with that, let's go to Shane Bacon. Shane Bacon.
1: This is, uh, you know, kind of middle of the book is when I get a little, uh, I get a little frisky with the book. Um, and I try to take a little digs at some of the moms and dads that are potentially uh, reading to their kids that aren't the best golfers. Um, golf uses animal terms like eagle and birdie and holes that are dog legs move left or right. On the seventh and eighth lives a family of owls who ask who with some serious fright. And you can see, uh, you can see the beautiful AVL illustration there with the owl. Uh, he they, they just crushed it. But um, yeah, I mean, you know, that's uh, pretty surreal to continue to kind of look at it and see this thing actually in, in hand. I mean, I've only, Garrett, I've only had this in hand for like four days. So to uh, get an opportunity to like see it and actually read it out loud um, to you, you're the first person I've read this book to as I've opened it up. I just want you to know that.
0: Wait a minute. So you haven't read this to your kids yet?
1: So my, my, my wife did, uh, oh, okay. my wife, uh, when we got the books, <laughs> yeah, so I, I saw my, you
0: tweeted about that. Yeah. Okay,
1: yeah. But. Yeah. Yeah. My, my wife, uh, my wife grabbed a copy and, um, she went and, and laid on the bed and I went in there and sat with them. And, I uh, I think it's, you know, I, I live in a, in a, in a world where I'm supposed to enjoy the spotlight being on me, you know? I mean, it's, it's part of being, um, you know, up front on TV and in the media and those types of things. And I don't believe I'm the most comfortable with the spotlight on me. I mean, even in those kind of personal moments where, you know, we have the book that I wrote and reading it to my son. So I don't know if my wife knew to be proactive and grab it and go read it to Henry for the first time. But that was was one of those moments, you know, as a professional or as a journalist or whatever you want to call it that I'm going to remember for a long time.
0: Yeah, I bet. All right. So first of all, maybe just give me an overview of what, the book is about. It's called The Golfer's Zoo. What's the basic premise here?
1: Yeah, so uh, so wrote a children's golf book called The Golfer's Zoo, as you mentioned. Um, been working on it for about the past year uh, with the Back Nine Press group. Jim and his, and his team are awesome, and they've done a great job of helping me, you know, navigate a world that I don't quite understand. You know, I'd, I'd never published a book before. I was. You know, I'm I'm in the golf world. I get a lot of golf stuff sent to me. I was shocked at how little amount of golf books there were for kids. And so, when I would take Henry, who's my three and a half year old son, when I would take Henry to the golf course, and Henry's not into golf yet, he doesn't. I I cut down golf clubs for him. He doesn't care. Um, I have a putting green in my backyard. He lays on it and plays on it, but he doesn't quite care about the golf part of it yet. When we would go to the golf course, he was obsessed with the animals and. This actually all kind of derived from a conversation I had with Joel Klatt years ago about how Joel got his boys into golf. He's got three sons. He said he would go to the golf course, they'd play a hole as golf, and then they would play a hole, whatever the kids wanted to do. And a lot of the time it was go to the pond and look at the turtles or go throw rocks in the water and see if the fish moved. And so when those types of things were floating in my brain, I thought – about the zoo that is the golf course. I mean, every region of the world, every region of our country has different animals that live on the golf course. You can see snakes if you're in Arizona, you can see alligators if you're in Florida. Um, there are a lot of different types of animals. I and mean, we were in Montana a few weeks ago for a wedding. And I mean, I am, I'm head on a swivel looking for bears, right? I'm just like hoping to see a bear at some point on the golf course. So that's where it started from. The idea is mom and dad go to the golf course. They leave the kids at home what are they going to do and the whole idea of the book is to open up this world that is the golfer's zoo which is a golf course but really it's a habitat for animals
0: yeah i liked that em- emphasis and you know there's a golf as an experience of nature is something that's kind of cool to introduce to kids but also it fits with the the genre of a children's book right many children's books are kind of these taxonomies of animals. So there's there's sort of a, a fit there with the genre of the book. Kids are interested in hearing about animals.
1: They love animals. Um, you asked me to kind of think about my three books, my favorite children's books we'll get to in a bit. And it was interesting. I figured when you asked me that question, I would go animal heavy because... I like reading about animals. My son loves animal books. You'll hear later that it is a different direction, actually, of the ones I picked. But it's an easy way to introduce people to things, especially kids. They love animals. They love all sorts of animals. They love pictures of animals. And our illustrator, Eviel, I mean, the stuff he did with this book and some of the imagery he did, I mean, there's there's an image you'll see in the book if you buy it where they're reaching into a pond, and the illustration is from the pond up. So it's from basically in the water up, seeing the hands come in with the fish in the water. I mean, the the golf course is, I mean, it, it literally is a park, you know? I mean, not the Malcolm Gladwell level of park where he wants to bulldoze every golf course and make it a park, but golf courses are parks. I mean, they're animals that live there. You know, every superintendent, Garrett, have you ever met a superintendent that didn't have one or two dogs on the golf cart driving around? Like, this is a part of the experience of going to a golf course as you see birds, you see turtles, you see snakes, you see deer. That's part of what you do. You take pictures of these things. When I play golf now, I am taking pictures more of the animals I see on the golf course to show Henry later on that I am actually the golf holes that I'm playing.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And we we love animal content here at the Fried Egg. We talk about it all the time with the uh, the PGA Tour telecasts. You know, when the, yes. whenever there's an an alligator on the golf course and a, and a golfer interacts with it, that's a uh, that's golden content right there. So we've uh, we've concentrated that in in this book here. You mentioned that I asked you uh, to think about books that you have enjoyed reading to your kids. Now, now you have two kids, right?
1: Yeah, I have a three and a half year old son and a seven month daughter seven month old daughter.
0: Great. Okay, so. Um, you, you are in the thick of it right now, my friend. I, yes. I, I have two kids as well, but they're a little bit older. They're, uh, <laughs> uh, eight and five. So, so we're, we're, we're out of the woods a bit. So, uh, all, all respect to, to what you're going through at the moment. But in any case, I, I asked you to think about books that you have enjoyed reading to your kids. And I guess in particular, your son at three and a half is going to be getting into different types of books at this point. So uh what what have you uh, read to them that, uh, that you've enjoyed?
1: So um the one animal book that I picked was Goodnight Farm. I love Good Night Farm, classic book, very easy to read, a lot of animals involved. Henry's a big fan. Um so Goodnight Farm kind of popped to my mind when you asked that question a couple of days ago. Um, there okay. The one thing that I really enjoy doing when I read books to Henry is I we have a lot of Dr. Seuss books kind of passed on from my sisters that, you know, that have older children now. And I find it almost like work practice to read Dr. Seuss books. I, I have like personal challenges of like no mistakes, you know, as I'm reading the entirety of a Dr. Seuss book, don't mess one thing up because I feel like Dr. Seuss tried to mess you up as you're reading it. And the one that's the hardest for me is there's a walk it in my pocket. And so I pull that book a lot. When Henry asks for Dr. Seuss, which he's been asking for more lately than not, if I go with walking in my pocket, I know it's going to be a real test for me to get through the entire book without screwing up something because basically Dr. Seuss was trying to get you tongue-tied, right? So that's number two. I love that book. I think Dr. Seuss is an absolute genius, especially going through this process of trying to rhyme things and to see how unbelievably easy he made it seem. Not that easy, by the way. Uh, And then Goodnight, Goodnight Construction Site is third. Henry loves it. One of our go-tos. He's really into trucks, has been into trucks for the last couple years, and so that's an easy one because he likes to get into it. And then honorable mention is – the big book of trucks if you can see a theme here henry likes trucks a lot uh the big book of trucks simply because henry now reads that book to me which is uh when you start to transition from me reading the book to him to him reading it to me uh a little less work on dad's end
0: that's that's always a delightful moment when the when the kid knows the book well enough to to read it to you but beware at some point the kids are going to want to read on their own and that is a that is a bit of a sad moment because you just oh. feel like well you know what what's my purpose here?
1: We we had a Gary Gary, we had a moment. So so my, my mom, who is just the most lovely human that exists, um, comes out quite a bit to to help out and to be around the kids. You know, we don't have any family up in Connecticut, so when we need somebody to come up and watch, we typically reach out to either my mom or Cindy's parents first and foremost. And um my mom got Henry a bus not too long ago, probably a year ago, and Henry called it Nana bus, right? I mean it's Nana. And it's the bus that Nana got her. And the other day he was playing with the bus and now he's three and a half and he just called it a bus. And I heard, I'm listening to my wife and Henry interact in another room and Cindy goes, no, 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 that's Nana bus. And he goes, no, no, no. It's just a bus. And like my heart, you know, I'm like, no, 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 no. no. This is for the for the rest of eternity. This is supposed to be Nana bus. And when you start to hit those moments as a parent, when you don't, they don't, it doesn't matter to the kid. Right. I mean, it's not emotional for the kid, but to you, it's literally hearing your child grow up. Those are, uh, those are moments that uh, I don't know if I love the moment or if it's just part of it. But I, I, I'm not going to be excited, Garrett, about the moment when they want to read the books alone.
0: Yeah, I love that. No, you know, listen, you fool. This is just a bus. I realize it's just that this a is a bus. It's just the bus. <laughs> there oh. are. Yeah, there are so many stages like that where the magic just kind of, uh, you know, the innocence kind of gradually goes away. But it's a long process. So you, you've still you've still got uh, got a lot of time uh, from three and a half forward. Um, so uh, you've mentioned a couple of times the illustrations in the book. The words are obviously yours but the illustrations are by an artist named AVL Basel am I pronouncing that right
1: yep yep that's good
0: so what went into the process of creating those illustrations did you uh, communicate with AVL and kind of uh, come up with ideas and things like that i've always wondered how that works
1: yeah it was it that was probably the hardest process Garrett to be honest with you was to find the right illustrator i mean we reached out to a lot of people we we kind of first reached out to golf artists you know people in and around the golf space and you know some guys didn't and girls didn't have enough time or uh, they'd never done something like that and as we were getting closer and closer because we wanted to release the book before the holidays to give people an opportunity to buy it as a as a holiday gift for for anybody in the in and around their family and so as we were kind of getting closer and closer to crunch time jim and i basically went into a list of illustrators that have done stuff like this before. And, you know, Eviel's international. I mean, he's not an American illustrator. Uh, We weren't totally sure what we were going to get when he started to send. So what happens is you give notes on what you want, and you send the copy, and then they send – like sketches i mean they're black and white sketches basically penciled out sketches and the first one we got it was like okay this is it no brainer he gets it he knows what we want to do um he you know i mean these are beautiful i can't wait to see what they're going to look like in color and so it was a couple of two or three months of finding the right person but like i said the first basically one page back that we got was a win and uh and you know, I mean, listen, you write a children's book and it's important, but the illustrations are are way more important than the words on the page. And he, as I said, I mean, to say he knocked it out of the park. I mean, this is like shooting 52. I mean, it was perfection. It looks, you know, it just looks so professional. You, you haven't, (laughs) I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know. I, I really know what I'm doing in life in general, right? It's basically doing a book is like being a parent. You, you start out and you have guides and you've seen people do it before. You're like, oh, this guy wrote a book. I can write a book. Or this girl wrote a book. I can do it if they can do it. This person's a parent. They have three kids. Their kids are alive. Like, surely I can follow along and hammer out and, and make sure my kids aren't going to be too screwed up. But, you know, once you start to get in the thick of it, you have to learn day by day and, and to try to figure it out yourself. And so to see it kind of come to life and the way it did from his illustrations was you know, a special, uh, a a thing as I've done in my profession to this point.
0: What made you say to yourself, you know, I, I have this busy TV career. I have a popular podcast, active social media presence. You know, we know how much time goes into dealing with people on the internet. Um, what made you say, what I really need right now is to write a children's book. How did you, how did you get to that point? (laughs)
1: Uh, it was a it was a kick in the ass for my wife. Honestly, I mean, I, I I'm one of those people, like so many out there, that have a lot of ideas, throw them out there, write them in a notes app, but uh, don't always execute them. And it was kind of my wife saying, "Let's you've been talking about this for a while. Why don't you do it right?" And so. Yeah. I mean, you know, I mean, I was doing it over the last year, you know, our summers at Golf Channel are the busiest time of year with the major championships that we have and just basically the golf, you know, back to back to back. So it's very busy. I mean, a lot of this stuff is, is notations on the road uh, or emails on flights, but I've realized in my life as I've gotten older is if I'm not pushing myself to try new stuff, um, that I get, I don't know if it's depressed, but I definitely notice that I get a little down, and so I'm always trying to kind of look at new things to do. I mean, it might be a new workout. You know, it might be going and doing something at the gym I've never done. Um, maybe I've been chipping a lot one-handed lately. Uh, shout out Fred Couples. I've been shooting, <laughs> chipping one-handed just to try and see, because I actually think I might be a better chipper one-handed, especially in and around the greens, but it was just a push. It was trying out something different to see how it would go, to see if it could make any sense, to see See if I could actually execute it. I think that was one of the main reasons to try to get it uh, kind of wedged in the schedule, as you mentioned.
0: Was there partly a desire here to use the book to explain golf to your own kids? Is that something that you had kind of thought about before writing the book? Like, how do I describe to my children what I'm devoting my life to?
1: I think it was a hope of you know at least sparking some sort of interest. You know, I mentioned to you that. Henry's not a big golfer. He hasn't gotten into it yet. He hadn't gotten hooked. Like my buddy Ashton, um, I mean, his son Max, similar age. I think Max is three months older on the dot to Henry. And I mean, Max has this beautiful swing, and it looks great. And, and, I mean, Ashton was an an incredible golfer. You know, he's my four-ball partner and played professional golf for a while. But I see, you know, Max, and of course, as you know, I mean, you always compare your kids to other kids, right, just like we compare ourselves to other people. And I just wanted some sort of hook. It's not that you have to be obsessed with golf, but to maybe show a little bit of interest in going back to the golf course. And I think that was my hope with the book was maybe there's a kid or two out there that their parents read them the book and then they ask to go to the golf course with mom and dad. And if that's the hope, you know, we we hear the term grow the game a lot. I'm never really in the grow the game business. I mean, I, I hope people like golf and I hope people find golf and I hope people love golf the way I love golf. My hope with this book is that it sparks some imagination inside children to where maybe they'll want to go to the golf course once or twice with mom and dad and of those kids if 5 of them take up the game then i feel like it's a win
0: i'm i'm curious you know when your kids came along so this book is about parents who go out to play golf and, and right. it's sort of describing it to the the child that they have left at home to go do this and and so i'm curious about whether when your kids came along whether your relationship to playing golf changed.
1: Absolutely. I mean, I, it, I I actually wrote about this in the Golfer's Journal, you know, about kind of navigating. Garrett, you know this, when you work and live in the golf space, and I've been doing golf media for quite a while, and I know we're going to get into that in a bit. I've been in golf for a long time, and I've seen so many iterations of golf from caddy into playing, you know, to now working in it day to day. And your love can fade a little bit. I mean, your love in in terms of when to go to the golf course, when to go out and practice, I mean, that's something that I'm really, really lacking in in terms of dedicating my time to my actual golf game is I think there was a level of trying to get me back into it a little bit. And I think, you know, my next iteration of golf, uh, I mean, I went from – junior golfer that wanted to play collegiate golf to amateur golfer that wanted to play professional golf to professional golfer that didn't realize that he was good enough to do that for a living to back to amateur golf, right? Now it's competing in mid-ams and trying to qualify for USGA championships and things like that. You know, my future in golf is going to be golf with my kids. And if it's not Henry, I think it's going to be Charlotte. Charlotte will sit on the putting green and watch me putt. She'll watch the ball leave my putter and go in the hole or miss. And then she'll watch it come back, right? I can tell that there's a little bit more interest in her eyes than I think there was, was in Henry's eyes at, at that age. And so I think my whole future of golf is going to be golfing with my children. And so, yeah, maybe this was the first step in that next chapter of what golf's going to look like to me.
0: Well, I mean, for me, it was really useful to to read the book and kind of imagine a conversation with kids about why I'm going to play golf, why I'm leaving for five hours exactly, to exactly. go play this game right because you know one of the things that I dealt with when I had kids was the sense of guilt when I would leave to play golf totally you know and and totally. I still have not completely resolved this and and frankly, it got worse during the pandemic. When everybody else was returning to the golf course, I played less than I I think I have ever played because there was never a good moment for me, I, I felt like to stand up and say, All right, see you later, kids. Uh I'm going to play a game for five hours. I'll be back after that. But you're you're on your own with mom in, in the meantime. Uh, or, you know, I mean, uh, post pandemic, maybe, maybe mom will go with me and then we'll get a babysitter, but that's still like a tough thing to communicate. Why am I doing this? But the, the way that golf is portrayed in this book is that it's a, a kind of healthy regenerative visit to nature. Right. And that is, that is something that's useful. It's not just a selfish game that you're playing. There is, there is something that, you know, golf does for people, That is important and and communicating that to kids that you're leaving behind to go do this is important as well.
1: Well, first things first, Garrett, I got to say, I think this might be the first conversation I've ever had with somebody about that golf guilt that you talked about, because I feel it so much, you know, anytime I leave, um, I went to Southampton, uh, on Saturday, this past Saturday, you know, and, Long Island is a two hour drive each way for me. Right. So my buddy Ryan and I, you know, get in the car at eight in the morning or seven in the morning for a 10 30 tee time, you know, we're driving over there. We're playing golf, Uh bucket list golf course for me. I'd never played it before. Super excited to go over there and do that. You know, you sit around after, then you drive home and I'm home and and I I barely saw my kids all day. I mean, I I got to see Henry as he was going to bed. Right. And so I've basically lost an entire day uh, as a dad, you know, in my that's kind of how I look at it at times. And it's such a hard balance for me because I want to go play golf. I want to go experience these places. But at the same time, I don't like losing days with my kids. You know, I, I don't like I don't like having an entire day, an entire Saturday, where I don't see Charlotte and Henry, right? And so I, I didn't know that was a thing everybody else felt. I didn't know that, that that guilt out there is like a thing that a lot of parents feel. And and it's the same reason why – and I know it's like a joke, and it's a joke on social media, but the whole wives getting mad at their husbands for being obsessed and wanting to go play golf. But I, I understand it because – It's not four hours, it's six hours, right? And if you've got to drive somewhere, it's eight hours. I mean, it is an an entire day for the most part, depending on when the tee time is. And so, yeah, I mean, I think in a way, you know, the whole idea behind the Golfer Zoo is reminding people that it's not just golf, that... It's a great walk. It's camaraderie. It's experiencing things with somebody that you love, you know, in terms of this book. It's a husband and wife going out to the golf course. But, you know, even going out with a good group of friends, right? I mean, you know, getting a chance to be a part of the Friday event at Essex a month and a half ago or something. I mean, play an entire day with Andy you know, Andy's a good buddy of mine. I mean, playing an entire day of golf with Andy, it's more than a round of golf, right? It's more than a day of golf. It's getting a chance to spend hours on the golf course or hours walking a park with a friend of yours you don't get to catch up with much. So, you know, in those instances, I feel less guilty, but to just go play in the money game on Friday, I feel the guilt. I feel that parental guilt.
0: Yeah, you've got to make it worth it somehow. But I, I, I guess that, you know, you just have to get to a point or and speaking for myself i have to get to a point where i say you know it's okay to do this it's it's right. okay to go spend uh, a big portion of the day doing something that is you know healthy uh for for me and and you know makes me kind of feel better and feel more ready to to come back home and really be present and and value my time there but i'm not sure i've totally worked through golf guilt myself and and so I was I, just curious to to hear where where you're at in this process I mean your kids are are younger than mine, so you know this is an even kind of fresher question for you. but do you feel like you've kind of gotten better over time of you know sort of saying like there's the golf part of my life and there's the part of my life where I'm a parent, and I don't have to be a parent all the time you know uh, every single hour of the day sometimes i can go do something that's that's kind of more for myself
1: i haven't gotten totally there yet but i definitely understand the point of in in a way almost forgiving yourself for wanting to go have fun alone right uh, i'm going to go do something i want to go do it's not selfish i think a lot of the time that term floats around, you know, I mean, golf can feel very selfish when you go do it without anybody in your family or, or anybody involved in and around, you know, your four or five hours out on the golf course. But at the same time, it's something that I love and it's something that I want to go do. You know, for me, Garrett, the thing that I've noticed over the last couple of years is the most fun experiences I have on the golf course. It's not golf course. It's not my play. It's the three other people in the group. And so I've noticed that I'm way more interested in playing those rounds of golf when it's going to be with, like, true groups of friends of mine. You know, I mean, this year in 2020, what is it, November 3rd? I mean, this year, some of the most fun rounds I've had were up in Montana. My buddy Rusty got married a few weeks ago. I was playing with Rusty and my dad and then another good friend of ours – And Rusty's, you know, my best friend in the world – and playing golf with my dad. I mean, we're playing with rental clubs, like regular shafted, whippy rental clubs. And those were some of the rounds I'll remember the most from the year because the people involved were the reason that I had so much fun out on the golf course. I didn't see a bear, by the way, which is a bummer. But, um, <laughs> I mean, Rusty's beard was as gnarly enough to where it might have looked like a one – you know, but I, I, I just th- – that's when I don't feel as guilty, I think, is when I'm out there – you know, walking for four hours with people that I love, you know, with people that I want to be around and with people that I call my, my close community. I think that's when the guilt goes away the most.
0: Yeah. And I guess that that is part of how you can, uh, work towards a relationship with golf that is even better post kids than it was before, because, you know, before totally. I had kids, I could just go do anything with my day and not really think about it, not really think about the opportunity cost of going spending a day doing something completely useless, right? I I didn't even think about that when before I had kids. Um and you know, there's a way in which having kids in your life makes you value time a bit more and ask yourself is what I'm doing today worth it? And if you can make the golf worth it through this social aspect that you're talking about or or something else. If you can if you can make those experiences really kind of intense and valuable, then your golfing life kind of improves even.
1: Yeah, the the sleeping the sleeping dragon here about this whole conversation is obviously what you and I are both hinting at is the fact that our golf games are not nearly as good as they used to be. Cuz <laughs> <Well>, we're, <laughs> we're not we're never playing and we're never practicing. Listen, and, uh, Shane, you,
0: you had a golf game to lose. I mean, I like you you, you were yeah. a really good, great gol- oh. and remain a, a very very good golfer. I have never been a particularly good golfer.
1: <laughs> I I played uh I I mean I played so bad at Southampton. I was so excited. Decided to go play golf and you know you it's it's interesting I, I was I was trying to explain this to to Cindy one day about when you're in the golf space and when you when you live in this world of like media and you know I, I don't want to say being known but you know being a notable human that that does golf media right? Whoever you're playing with for the first time is expecting something out of your golf game. Oh, yeah. And so you're really never having a quote-unquote casual round. And again, I think there's a level of those casual rounds being so exciting when you do play with your buddies that know you and know your golf game and play a lot of golf with you. But when you're just going and playing with somebody that you might never play with again, there are expectations, even if you don't want them to exist, right? Even if I want to show up and go, hey, I haven't played golf in a month. They're wanting to see long drives and birdies and a low score. And when you can't quite provide that, even if they don't mention it at all, you feel it internally. So I think lowering those expectations is something I'm still struggling with in golf is, you know, finding what is my golf game now? You know, what am I expecting to get out of this when I go out on the golf course? Because for so long, and to your point, pre-kids, the the entirety of my happiness on the golf course before I had kids was what I shot. You know, I mean, was it a good round or a bad round? And that was all I thought about. I didn't really think about much else besides my selfishness and what I'm going out there and executing an accomplishment as a golfer. And now a lot of that has, has flipped and I'm still trying to understand what that is.
0: It's probably a loss of consistency when it comes to your playing ability, right, Shane? Because I would imagine sure. that you still have days when, when you shoot in the sixties, but there are other days when it might go the other direction. And so there's, it's, it's hard to know what to expect when, when you're not practicing and when you don't play very often. It's hard to know what to expect from your golf game. And I guess that part of what, you know, part of what we're trying to do at the fried egg is, is give people a way to enjoy golf when they're not focusing on their games, when they're not focusing on getting better, you know, go enjoy golf course architecture. I I suppose that's, that's where I get some of my, my purpose in writing about golf course architecture. Here's something to appreciate no matter how your golf round is going. I I guess that's a, that's an important aspect of this for me because yeah, you just don't know how you're gonna play? You really don't, right?
1: I mean, that's something that from you guys, like you and Andy and Will and and the crew. I mean, that's something that I've taken away from what you guys put out there is. I pay more attention to that stuff now than I ever did before. And so for me to play Essex, right, with Andy and just to listen to Andy talk for a few hours about what makes this great or not great, I mean, it really is like you're in a you're in a collegiate class. You know, it's like you're at a university listening to, you know, professor lecture about journalism, right? Or business. I mean, to be in that kind of dome in and around a brain as good as Andy's about golf course architecture and to just literally get to walk and talk with him about those types of things is quite a special experience. And from you and from Andy and from Will and from some of the other people in online and, and they do such a great job with this type of stuff, it has opened up this whole other world of like playing Southampton the other day. And I know I've gone back to this a few times, but playing Southampton and playing like a dog, I'm not as focused on the way I'm playing because I'm wanting to look at all the Seth Rainer stuff that I would have never thought about 10 years ago.
0: Yes. And, you know, to bring it back to your book, part of what's happening in this book is that mom and je- mom and dad are enjoying nature, right? They are, they are playing a game and, and that's fun and and funny in some ways. And sometimes it doesn't go very well. And and even that sort of humorous. But the main thing that's happening is a is a visit with uh, with nature, which is, you know, I think that's very similar to appreciating the architecture. It's just another way of lifting your eyes up instead of kind of narrowly focusing on the on the game. You're looking around. Right. You're seeing where you are and you're kind of being present in that moment on the golf course, appreciating nature. You don't even have to look at the architecture. You can just kind of look at the landscape and, and the animals and. And that's, that's fun. You know, that, that kind of refills the tank a little bit.
1: Yeah. It's, it's the new age, stop and smell the roses, like stop and feed the fish. I mean, you know, just <laughs> let's, let's, let's find something out there to take our mind away from the, the massive frustrations that can happen when golf isn't going the way you hoped it would go. Um, it's so funny that, that score is such an obsession, especially stateside, right? I mean, we have to have a number, we have to post scores. I mean, now if I play golf at my club and don't post my score, you get an email about it. You know, I mean, there is so much pressure now about making sure that number is posted. What did you shoot today? And uh, a lot of the time now, especially, you know, you go to the golf course and and I don't want to think about my score, right? I, I, That's the last thing I would hope to think about, even if, it, if I'm never going to totally be able to detach from that.
0: This episode of the Fried Egg Podcast is brought to you by the Fried Egg Pro Shop. It's at proshop.thefriedegg.com. We've got a lot of cool stuff in there, including some new additions to our print shop. We've recently added photos of Sand Hills, Muirfield, Sciota, Hoopy Match Club, Oak Hill, Huntington Valley, and Presidio Golf Course in San Francisco. You can order these photos on canvas or mounted on metal, and any of them would make a great gift for the holiday season, if you're planning ahead, which is wise. Also in the pro shop, we have all the layers you need for fall and winter, from long sleeve polos to quarter zips and hoodies, all that and more at ProShop.TheFriedEgg.com. Uh, so Shane, you have worn a lot of hats in the golf world, now including children's book author, but you've also been a caddy at St. Andrews. You've had this varied career in media and for a couple of years, you played professionally on the mini tours. Um, and I'm curious, whether I want to mostly kind of talk about your, your career in media, but w- was there a particular moment in your competitive career when you said to yourself, you know what, I, I think I might have to figure out something else to do with my life?
1: Yeah, I think it was my first professional event, my very first <laughs> round. <laughs> I uh, <laughs> Well, okay. I'll tell. I'll give you two stories. Both firsts, by the way. Um, my very, very, very first pro event, my first event that I was checked the professional box, was a Pepsi Tour event out in Arizona, and my dad came out to caddy for me. My dad flew out from Texas, and um, you know, I mean, we don't know anything about mini tours at the time, right? I mean, it's carts. Like this is so non-serious, but of course, it's a big deal to us. And I remember I was standing on 17T, and my dad said to me. You're the only guy in the group that's made a bogey today. So um, that was one of those kind of smack you in the face type of moments where you're like, oh, well, that's <laughs> probably not a great sign. And then my first Gateway Tour event, I shot 68. And remember looking at the leaderboard, and I think I was in like 48th place. And I played great. I birdied my last two holes to shoot 68. And um, that was a really good score for me. And when I realized literally in my first – I you know, you pay for the whole season, Right. And I realized right away that 68 wasn't a very good score as a pro. That was really scary for me because I was never excellent at going crazy low. I've shot crazy low scores before back in you know, my heyday, but – I was never one of those guys that kind of just like blindly went out and shot 65, right? I mean, I had to really have the putter going to do that or had to close grade or something like that. And so to see where I stood after what I thought was a great round uh, was a, be- a bit of a reality check. So those were really the two moments. Uh, a-, a, little, a little a little daunting considering they were both firsts, but I guess it's better to realize early than to realize too late.
0: So tell me about going from uh struggling mini tour pro to OG golf blogger. A lot of uh, yeah, listeners might not yeah. know that you were you were one of those uh, original golf bloggers from from the late 2000s uh self-run blog you started with called uh, Dogs That Chase Cars. Uh, what do you remember about getting that started? What made you think like okay, yeah, I can I can write?
1: I went to University of Arizona and um I remember they had a they had a really good student newspaper there called the Daily Wildcat. And I read a few copies uh, early, you know, into my freshman year. And I just went to the – basically, I went to their newsroom and said, I want to write, you know, sports for you guys. I think I could help out a little bit. And um, and so, you know, I mean, I spent four years doing that, right? I mean, I was a journalism major. But uh, as you know, Garrett, a lot of the, the stuff you really learn, like a lot of the life lessons – come from outside of the classroom. And so I I learned as much doing that as I did, you know, from from my degree there at at Arizona. And so, you know, I think early into that I, I realized that I might have a little bit of a I might have a little bit of skill in the writing department. And then when I went and tried to play, it was when I was done playing, my buddy Andrew reached out to me and said, Hey, you need to get back to writing. Like you've got to find a place to do this. And so I I started a blog. I was I was working kind of a nine to five job in Denver, Colorado. And most of my time spent doing my quote unquote job was just blogging, uh, for, for, for dogs that chase cars. And, uh, my big break, uh, there's a, there's a fellow named Ryan Wilson that still writes NFL and does a great job. But Ryan was, was working at AOL at the time, uh, for the fan house, capital H. And he, uh, he would link, remember blog roles. Remember when you would like link to stories and it would just be the blog. It would just be the, the, like one line and a link to the story, uh, I would get those Google alerts and he linked to me a few times from some of the goofy stuff I was doing. And uh, and basically, I reached out to Ryan and said, is there any chance I could write for you guys, you know, golf? And um, that was when kind of the pain opportunity started.
0: Before that break happened, were there moments when you were writing the blog when you thought nobody's reading this? Oh, this is, God. this is not going all anywhere All the time,
1: all the time. <laughs> or, you know, I mean, it was like blogger days, right? Like blogger.com. Yes. And your, your, so your blog sections. was literally
0: on the, on the platform blogger. It was, yes. uh, yeah. that, that, yeah, it was the, <laughs> that, that was, that was a Google company, right? Am I? Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. They bought it. Yep. And, uh, and you know like, I, I remember like teaching myself H, you know, like HTML stuff, like where I could code, which was super basic stuff, like how to bold and how to strike through and things (laughs) like that. Um, you know, I mean, this, this is when you had to like click into that to do those types of things with coding, um, how to link to your, to your stories. Um, you know, all the time. I mean, I would write all these stories and there'd be no comments or there'd be one comment and I'd be all excited. I click on it. It'd be a friend of mine, you know, and you're like, Oh God, you know, this, (laughs) this is just my idiot buddies that are reading this stuff. Nobody else is. And, uh, and I think, you know, when it was when I started to see those types of links pop up. And then, you know, I was really proactive, Garrett. I mean, I reached out to Will Leach at Deadspin and I wrote major championship previews for Deadspin very early into the Deadspin days. Uh, I wrote some stuff for With Leather. Do you remember With Leather? That was I a don't. very early blog. Uh, Sports by Brooks. I think I did a couple of posts for Sports by Brooks back in the day about golf. I mean, I was anybody and, and everybody that would take me uh, I would, I would write for them, pay me or don't pay me. I didn't really care. So yeah, I was, I was just trying to see interest. I was just trying to see somebody find my stuff, you know, worth the read or worth the click. And of course, you know, this was even pre Twitter days or like right when Twitter days were starting to to gain a little bit of traction. So you didn't even see if people were reading it through that, through that platform.
0: Right. Yeah, you know, the the early blogging space, I guess not early blogging space, but you know, when blogging was was really a big thing, there was kind of a freedom about it, right? That there was there was a way for writers to to break in without having to go through the usual process of establishing themselves as you know official journalists going to J School or or whatever. You, you could just start writing a blog and you would sort of get to know other bloggers social media has i guess kind of replaced that but i wonder if you ever miss the the kind of blogging community you know when when that was really active
1: well i mean absolutely and and that was it right the blogging community was it i mean you know this was i mean i, I it's funny i pulled up safari the other day and i still on my cuz i don't use safari i still have on the like the blog bar like all these links to these blogs. And I mean, half of them probably don't even go to anything anymore. You know, I mean, this was, there was such that community of, you know, 30, 40, 50 websites that you would frequent, that you would try to get the the RSS feeds on your, on your outlook so that it would update you when a new, when a new link was available. I mean, I remember sitting in the back of journalism classes with my buddy, Kevin Stamler at Arizona, refreshing page two, on ESPN to see if Bill Simmons had posted something new. I mean, there was really that community. I was covering the men's basketball team at Arizona, which, of course, the men's basketball team is always good. And I was covering it, reading a Simmons article, and I remember a guy walked by and goes, if you like Bill Simmons, you'll like this, this website called Deadspin. And that was how I was introduced to Deadspin. You know, I mean, there was a real small community of people that were obsessed with writing about golf and the humor was there and the freedom was there. And I mean, I could post anything, Garrett, you know, you could write anything about anybody. You could take images from anywhere. Nobody cared. Uh, it was, it was a very strange world, but it was in a weird way it was a very respectful world. You know, if you got an article from somebody, 9 times out of 10, they would add the link at the bottom of the story and that's not necessarily the case now in 2022.
0: Yeah, that's very true. And and something that maybe people don't really remember is that blog posts could kind of in a weird way go viral. Sure. through being shared by other blogs. That was kind of the way that things went viral. They, they didn't go viral on Twitter cuz Twitter was, you know, kind of in its infancy when when you started blogging. And, you know, the way it really happened was other bloggers linking to a certain article and discussing it. And I guess the the thing that I kind of miss about blogging, I did a little bit of blogging myself, not on golf actually, but uh you know, the thing that I miss about it is the kind of casualness of a blog post. It didn't have to be a masterpiece. It could just be like a link and a little bit of funny discussion or a joke or something. And you'd post that and people would read it and that would be it. You know, (laughs) I'm not sure that something like that exists any longer. I mean, there is there is Twitter, there is Instagram. But I feel like the um, the way that people present themselves now or kind of self fashion on the Internet is more polished and a little bit less fun than it was. In blogging, and maybe I'm just being nostalgic, but that that's kind of the way it seems to me.
1: <laughs> I, I I feel you. I mean, I remember Garrett. I wrote one of my my most trafficked you know blogs on dogs that chase cars. Was I noticed that Chris Berman had like one salmon shirt that he would wear every year at the Pebble Beach Pro Am, <laughs> you know? And I was like, I remember one year I'm watching the Pro Am, and I'm like, I was like, dude, I feel like he's worn this shirt before, and so I go into Getty. And sure enough, it's like the same <laughs> shirt. And so I just wrote like a blog post. It was like, Chris Berman only wears one golf shirt. You know, and it was – I don't even know. There might have been 30 words written in the post. It was like eight pictures of him over the years in the different shirt. And, I mean, you know, you talk about hitting the 09 blogosphere right in the heartstrings with a Chris Berman post. It's, you know, taking a slight dig at him. I mean, Deadspin posted to it and With Leather posted to it, and all of a sudden you're getting thousands of clicks through to see your article, and it was such a win. It was such an honest victory back then when something was successful because, like you said, the only way to know if it was successful was Was from traffic. If the traffic came in, you knew someone somewhere linked to what you did, which means someone somewhere liked what you did.
0: I I I love that the Chris. I can actually uh, uh, picture that Chris Berman shirt, but that's like a classic blog post right there. Yeah. I'm not sure people kind of do content like that anymore. It would be it would be condensed into a tweet or an Instagram post or I don't know, maybe there's something that the kids are doing on TikTok that would replicate it. But uh that that is that is sort of the the perfect example of the (laughs) of the blog genre. Um so uh you mentioned that you you kind of got a break into paying work on mainstream websites. You worked at AOL, I believe Yahoo, CBS, bunch of places. What what kind of work were you doing there?
1: So I would blog about all sports. Uh, When I got uh, the full, it was, it was interesting. I mean, you talk about, you know, being very lucky and and, and getting very, very lucky breaks, knowing the right people. I remember when AOL was like making it AOL fan house and it was going to be a sports website. Um, They reached out to me the week I was thinking about quitting my day-to-day job in Denver. They reached out to me about a full-time position. And so I went and blogged about every sport, you know, I mean, the rule in journalism is if you don't know the sport, tell them it's your favorite, right? And then just figure it out on the way, you know, th- throughout the process of it. And so I would blog about football and college basketball and college football and um, anything and everything. I mean, I did a lot of golf, but, you know, you would see your name and it would have a link to all the sports that you were doing and how many articles you'd done that month and that year. And I was pretty much willing to do any of that. And so. I was writing, you know, you, you would get these emails. I mean, again, kind of going back to uh, how, how simplistic things were. You know, we had like a listserve and when a hot thing was happening, you know, if, if some team was cutting a player or some guy got arrested or some golfer was was, you know, WD and you know, I remember when Jerry Rice W D with the rangefinder at that Corn Ferry event, you know, you'd get an email to the listserv of the sport. And it was your job to grab the the story. I got it. And then you would write it and get it up as quick as possible because that was the key back then was you had to get it up as fast as possible for Google SEO. And so that was basically my job. I mean, I was writing eight to 10 articles a day, maybe more at times. Um, It was really on your computer um, you know, six, seven, eight hours a day, you know, really dialing into what was happening in real time and trying to get that up on the main page. And if it made the front page of Yahoo, for goodness sake, so the front page of AOL, it was a really, really big deal. And I mean, there were bonuses involved in the most trafficked stories you could write. So it was really a kind of chase the carrot type of uh, approach to the media world.
0: All right. So you were a, an internet writer, you know, you were, you were one of those people hunched behind a computer. How did you end up making the transition to TV work?
1: Yeah, it, it was it was crazy. I, I always you know, I mean, my, my dream job when I was a kid was to be on TV. I wanted to be on SportsCenter, you know, when I yeah, was. You know, yeah, 12, you wanted to be Dan
0: Patrick, old. Keith Olbermann, yes. like one of the oh, yeah, I mean, everybody of our age, Shane. I mean, I I, those, those are the coolest dudes or were the coolest dudes in the universe uh, that that was the job you wanted.
1: Yep. If you wanted to be a writer, you wanted to be Rick Riley. And if you wanted to be on TV, you wanted to be Dan Patrick, Ulberman, or Stuart Scott, right? I mean, that was the dream as, as as our kind of very late millennial world lived in. And um, and so, you know, I went into journalism, you know, in ter- in terms of like print and writing with the hope and the dream of eventually getting into the TV. And really it was a break. I mean, I it was I think it was 2014, somebody reached out to me from the Back Nine Network. And they were going to try to take this idea and turn it into a TV network on direct TV. Would I have any interest in doing it? And, you know, I'd, I'd kind of, I'd kind of felt like I'd, I'd landed about where I was going to land in terms of writing. You know, I wasn't, I wasn't kind of going up in the space. I was pretty stagnant. And so, uh, I flew out to Connecticut, uh, Connecticut is the state I keep returning to for some reason. And, um, I, uh, I interviewed and, they offered me a job and I was dating Cindy at the time. And I was like, Hey, I, I've always wanted to be on TV. I'm probably going to take this job in Connecticut. Do you have any interest in going? And she was like, yeah, I I, I'd love to. So, uh, we moved out to Connecticut and that was basically my, my break in the TV was a startup network, um, channel Two Forty Five on direct TV, you know, and, uh, and from there it, it, from there, I mean, more opportunities came really. I mean, The opportunity to go with Fox, Uh, I would not have been able to accept the job with Fox in 2015 if Back Nine Network hadn't uh, gone under. And so, again, kind of talking about, you know, moments in your life and your career that kind of changed the trajectory of what you're doing. I mean, I was going to have to say no to an opportunity to go work with Fox Sports with that USGA contract because I was doing the Back Nine Network stuff. And then Back Nine Network went under and that opportunity was still there with Fox.
0: Oh, Wow. When you started being on TV, what were some of the things that you had to learn?
1: Like I, I, when,
0: when I look at people, on, when I look at you on Golf Today now, <laughs> I, I just get, I can't uh, imagine like doing that. And uh, and and so what what did you yeah, what, what did you have to adjust about the way that you communicated with people with the camera and in, in learning how to do that?
1: I mean, all of it, honestly, Garrett. I mean, all of it was new to me. You know, I hadn't had a lot of experience doing much of like teleprompter work, so there was a lot of, you know, making sure that I was kind of hitting the right cadence with the teleprompter. It is addressing the camera when you're doing an interview, so you make sure you're bringing the people at home into it, and it doesn't just feel like two. You're in. You're kind of spying on two people. Talking, you know, it was it was hosting the show was called the Turn, and I had two co-hosts with me, and it was making sure I got Eric in here or got Lou in there, uh, taking it to break the right way. I mean, it was it was learning it on, you know, it was literally real time class for me uh, day to day. You you know, the one thing I did that I I urge anybody and I tell people when they email me or DM DM me on social about how do I get into this is you just kind of can't say no and. I early into my Back Nine Network experience said yes to all the other shows, all time, anytime you need me to come on. Uh, if it was going on with John McGinnis and Jeff Rood, absolutely. If it was going on with Maddie Blake and his show, absolutely. I was willing to do anything to improve at, at the craft because I had no craft. And so <laughs> if there was anything I could do to be around people that had done TV more than I had, or just simply brought a new energy or new perspective to it i was i was going to say yes and so the question of what did i have to learn the answer is all of it and you know just trying to find out what you're good at and what you're bad at and then what you're bad at to get better at while you're not forgetting to continually to try to you know sharpen up the stuff that you're good at
0: uh, so basically the overall picture here that I have had of you for a long time is that this is a man who has done just about literally every job in golf media, you know? (laughs) Uh, And we haven't even talked about how you got into podcasting and, you know, you, you have a a popular Twitter account and so you're in the social media. So I, I think you're probably the best person to ask about this. How do you think, you know, since you started, how do you think the, the golf media landscape has changed, and and do you think it has changed for the better?
1: I mean, I think you could probably say sports media and not just go with golf, even though I know obviously we're very focused on golf. I mean, the media world has changed so much. I think a lot of it is a little bit of what you said about the old blogging days was the old blogging days, you know, the olden days, if you will, on the internet, it was a lot about fun and the payout wasn't necessary. And to me now, media feels like the payout is a must. Like, I've got to get something back for this, or it's not quite worth my time. I feel that personally at times, you know, where, you know, maybe this week I I don't want to do a podcast, but I know I have to, or um, I don't feel like I have the energy to go track down this person or that person for comments or quotes, or even off the record stuff. You know, it's such a, the payoff is almost more necessary than the work that goes into what you're trying to do. Uh, And when I first started doing this, it was all about just trying, if I can get one person to smile, laugh, be entertained, you know, that's the goal. And for me over the last couple of years, I've really tried to return to that mentality is to go back to the way I used to think about golf where, I mean, if you look at my Twitter, it's pretty much entirely me being silly, right? Because I feel like that's how I am Normally, is I'm just trying to have a little bit of fun with what I'm following or what I'm watching or what I'm covering, and uh, it's not so easy to do that anymore. And so, do I think it's changed for the better? I don't want to sit here and say it's changed for the worse. I just think it's different. I mean, I think the media in the '90s versus the media when I was coming up uh, was very, very different. And I'm sure the people in the '90s went, "Oh God, this sucks. This is this is way too irreverent. You know, this is way too loosey goosey. These people don't know what they're doing." And I would say now there's a way smarter group of people doing this. You know, I mean, I think about, you know, I've mentioned you and Andy, and obviously, you know, I'm a big fan of you guys. I mean, I consider you guys friends first and foremost, before I consider yourself, you know, golf media people, but I mean, I look at people like Dan Rappaport, who is a young guy in the business who I think is really smart and does an, a hell of a job at what he's doing. I look at people like you know, Paige Sporanik, who has had to kind of navigate the golf landscape in so many different ways, and to look at what she's doing with it now, I find it very impressive. I mean, for her to, to continually put herself out there and to also understand that poking fun at yourself is a part of the job is not the easiest thing to do and it could it could doom a lot of people I mean it could knock a lot of people out of of this profession and so there are so many people I think day to day we see in the media landscape that maybe we don't appreciate how good they are at what they do. Think about no laying up I mean, you know think about that in 1998. Hey we've got five buddies we're gonna quit our jobs and go write about golf and video about golf and to now look at where they are and how big they are in this media landscape. You don't have to be an ex-player, you know, you don't have to have played or caddied or coached or any of that stuff. If you're smart and you're honest about what you do, there is opportunity for you in that world and for that I think in a way you could almost argue it's better.
0: Returning to your earlier point about the entrance of money into all of this. That that's really interesting because I agree that, you know, Independent media outlets now have a path to kind of to to success and to higher distribution, and and can kind of establish themselves in different ways. You know, I I think that the way that I came into media wouldn't have been possible in in the nineteen nineties. I was a teacher; that was my career, and uh, I just sort of, you know, got to know Andy by being on Twitter and and writing some things on a on a personal blog, that wouldn't have been available to me in in the 90s at all I would have had to if I had wanted to work in media I would have had to do it in a very different way and so I think that that you know way in which people can kind of carve out a space for themselves is is significant but at the same time once it becomes your full-time job once it's no longer kind of casual and like whatever anything goes I'm I'm doing this blog uh, when I'm you know sitting at work and supposed to be doing other things that feeling of kind of just like freely doing this for fun. Somehow we've got to like, hang on to that feeling a little bit because it's exactly what was great about early podcasts and early blogs, right? That people weren't doing it for brand partnerships or for an income. They were just doing it because they liked doing it and liked making people laugh and liked building a community around their interest. And so, you know, once money enters into that equation, it becomes really hard to maintain that sense of the, the kind of wildness and, and freewheeling nature of what independent media was like 15 years ago.
1: It's just a reminder. I mean, I think this is probably a life lesson is, you know, when things aren't the easiest or when things feel like work or when things are stressful, it's reminding yourself why you're doing it. And normally it's because you loved it. I mean, you know, especially for us, right? I mean, we're in the golf space, we're in the golf media. We love golf. You know, even if weeks feel like work and, you know, you're on the road and you're staying at a hotel and your flight gets delayed and you're going to miss your connection, you're not going to get home to see your kids. You've got to find a way to remind yourself of why you love it. And you mentioned the early podcast days. I mean, I remember getting a sponsor on the clubhouse, like my first golf podcast. I mean, I, I would love to, I will tell you offline how much they paid me <laughs> <It was laughs> very little at the time. I was, I couldn't believe that somebody was going to pay to sponsor this podcast. I remember how easy it used to be to get guests. You know, when I first started doing the clubhouse, I mean, I could get anybody. Justin Thomas came on a couple times. I had Rory. I remember I broke news with Rory McIlroy on the clubhouse, and it was on the bottom ticker of ESPN, and it said the clubhouse was Shane Bacon. And I'm like, this is so surreal to be seeing these types of things. And now, to your point, there's so much that goes behind the scenes to get things to go the way they go, and most of that is money. So for me, when the flights are long and they're delayed and the hotel's not great – I remind myself of the Open this year, right? I was sitting on the live from set working for Golf Channel at St. Andrews. I mean, this is a place that I would loop for, you know, anybody and everybody when I got out of college in 06. I mean, this was a place I worked in one capacity. And fast forward to 2022, and I'm sitting on a set with Mark Rolfing and Jaime Diaz, you know, two of my favorite people in the golf media world, coming to millions of people's television screens. I mean, that's that's the that's the dream, right? Like, that's why I did this. That's why I started Dogs That Chase Cars. That's why I reached out to Ryan Wilson and said, can I write a fan house? That's why I was hitting Will Leach up back in the day and said, can I write major championship previews for Deadspin that were probably getting one hundredth of the traffic that most of their articles were getting? All of that was to get to a point where maybe one day you could be on TV or you could be writing for sports illustrated or yahoo.com or golfchannel.com and someone out there was interested in what you had to say. And so I think for all of the, the bullshit that we go through in this business, I'm reminded a lot that it's such a dream that we get to do this and it's not work if you really think about it. And you know, for me, it's like, I go back to the old course so much because that was one of the most fun work weeks I've had maybe in my career was just being there on site, getting to be a part of the Open Championship at St. Andrews. And if you'd have told me that in 06, that I was going to get to do that at some point in my career, I wouldn't have cared what you'd asked me to do to get to that point. I would have done it.
0: Shane, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Uh, tell people where they can get your book.
1: Yeah, the Golfer Zoo is available back9press.com. That's the number nine not written out. Back9press.com backslash bacon, like my name, like the food. Uh, You can order it from there, and uh, I appreciate it if you would. If you do it and you read it to your kids, please send a picture to me because that's been the best part of doing the book is seeing literal pictures of parents reading it to their kids.
0: This episode of the Fried Egg Podcast was edited by Meg Atkins. If you haven't already... I'd encourage you to rate and review our podcast on iTunes. Thank you so much for listening and supporting and we'll be back again soon.